ஒரிஜினல் is a dreamer but who is a unicorn well you know think about it like this a unicorn is the next big thing everyone talks about them you know they attract admirers and leave us wondering how do they do it all they take the road less traveled and that becomes a source of inspiration to everybody else in this podcast i want to acknowledge and thank our knowledge partners the society for human resources management which is the voice of everything which is important in the world of work Our other knowledge partner is TAGD, that is T-A-G-G-D, a digital-ready platform that makes talent acquisition on demand a reality. And me, I am Abhijit Bhadri. I work with organizations and leaders on their leadership, talent, and culture. This is just the subject of a book that I've recently written, which is called Dreamers and Unicorns. I also coach individuals who are navigating shifts in their career. Well, actually, I was traveling alone and, uh, you know, it was back in the day when uh, I sat in the train and uh, people struck up conversations. So this man asked me, you know, young man, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to Australia. What are you going for? I eventually got around to asking, so what do you do? Do you study or something? And I said, no, I'm just trying. And he said, yes, but what do you do? <laughs> so <laughs> I said, uh, I'm a... I, I'm a chess player or whatever. I think it, uh, there must have been something along the lines of, but your father has a company, you know, that kind of stuff. So uh, <laughs> he could see what was in his mind. And then at some point he said, well, young man, don't take this badly. And, uh, you know, sports is a very unpredictable career. And if you wanted to, uh, you should really think twice before you take the plunge. I mean, if you were Vishwanathan Anand, I, I don't know the words fairly clearly. If you were Vishwanathan Anand, then you could make a living playing chess but otherwise i would think twice hello listeners welcome to season 2 of dreamers and unicorns and when i have to introduce today's guest i'm going to give you a couple of hints first of all here is a person who's won padma shri padma bhushan padma vibhushan and then of course if i were to say the person has had a planet named after him and then of course if i have to say that this person has won the chess oscar multiple number of times where then it's a giveaway because then we are talking of just one and only vishwanathan anand uh, he likes to be called vishi so vishi welcome to dreamers and unicorns thank you so much for being with us yes nice to be here vishi i'm going to start by sort of asking you a couple of basic questions about different aspects of um, the game and uh, you know have you been watching uh, queen's gambit i know you've done a couple of reviews i saw on instagram but uh, uh, you know what was your reaction when you look at that um, uh, film the queen's gambit on netflix what was your take uh, the thing that struck me the most was uh, how accurately it depicts chess i mean they've taken the uh, the chess bit and, and made it something insiders don't have to score that so that's the thing that leaps out in it at an insider Incidentally, I had a conversation with a friend. I mean, it's a common chess lament that 
whenever chess is portrayed in let's say an ad or a movie it's terribly inaccurate the pieces are set up wrongly first of all uh, second mate happens in a position where even if you can't see the board you understand that the king <clears throat> is in much too open an area for it to be checkmated and things like that so just players tend to latch on to this and uh, this time they painstakingly not only uh, made the uh, you know paid attention to these details but they got the uh, entire games in i mean there are entire st- stretches which you can give us puzzles like i did in uh, you can actually even study these positions afterwards find them and all that was very well done now that that's from a chess player's perspective more broadly speaking uh, i think we have captured both the chess scene in the us in the 50s and 60s because that's what the book is based on i mean the author passed away in 84 as i know so in a sense the book is got to be frozen there they have incorporated chess games from uh, later years like there's one game from 1993 uh, which is the final one then there's a game from uh, the year 2000 and details like this but uh, it captures that and you know when when you do 50s and 60s you nearly go for bobby fisher and you sure. think that's what it's about but death is, is not a boy is a girl she's a girl and second she doesn't end up like bobby fisher so there in there's a lot of bobby fisher but uh, you start to look for other things there's a bit of lasca there's a bit of capablanca and you know it's very nice even the us chess scene the las vegas open all that is captured beautifully that for me doesn't explain why the show has 62 million views on netflix it's insane uh, the effect the show has had so clearly it speaks to something that non chess players find appealing and to be honest i'm struggling to place exactly what I I don't know what it is that they love. Maybe you should tell me because I don't know what it is they they like so much about the show. It's a it's a definitely a nice show which I recommend people watching, but it really seems to capture the, their imagination. For me, I think it is uh, about the ability to deconstruct the game. In many ways, you know, they they kind of explain a lot of the terms which can you know if you start to discuss it, then you know this is an opening. This is what it's called: Sicilian defense. you know it's done in a very very beautiful style of storytelling so for me that's really what works but i would be keen to know that you know there's another you know typical uh, a very very strong film based on chess shatranj ke khiladi uh, which satyajit ray had done um, did you get to see that i mean and you know that was that's the one other chess game that i chess game based movie that i can think of did you see it and if do you have any comments on that i mean you talked about accuracy ray was known for his uh, finickiness about being accurate mm-hmm. i didn't see the movie entirely so i i uh, can't answer that well but um, i mean at least till queen's gambit in india if somebody wanted to talk to you about a chess movie that was the name that came up i mean everyone would immediately bring up sadranj uh, kekilari so very much the i had the fortune of uh, meeting him but i did not see the movie in its entirety uh, So and what was that like uh, was it during the making of that film or uh, no 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 uh, i met him when uh, i had gone to calcutta for a chess tournament okay and uh, then the organizer said you know would you like to meet him are you kidding me so of course uh, <laughs> i went we spoke briefly and uh, well for me it was just meeting a legend is is it true that uh, introverts do better at chess than extroverts is that uh, accurate how would you describe yourself i don't see myself as particularly introverted 
But all chess players have this ability that, by the way, Beth Harmon has as well, which is sometimes to forget the rest, uh, outside world. That doesn't particularly mean that uh, we are introverts. Let's put it this way. Chess players, you know, span the gamut. But uh, a lot of what we want to talk about is captured in notation and things. It's a secret language. And so it's possible that outsiders perceive us as more introverted than uh, we are. I mean, until recently, you couldn't even call chess players a member of some cult. I mean, after all, these are people who, who sit, who can sit in a dinner table and play over an entire game in their heads just with the moves. This is also, by the way, brought out in the... Yes, they absolutely. Really emphasize that. Other professions have it as well. I'm sure you get some doctors together and they get going. But once they get going, it does sound inexplicable to me. You can see that they're not introverted, but you, uh, <laughs> you still see that you can't follow the conversation. The same so, thing uh, in many professions. Uh, I think mathematicians probably, when they get to tear away from the others and get to be amongst themselves, they really like to let go. No, I don't think uh, being, but just certainly forgives an introvert. Uh, there is no, there is no particular handicap in chess for being an introvert. So maybe that's the uh, key factor. But uh, chess players, yeah, we think about chess a lot, and. Uh, can be obsessive. I started the conversation with Vishwanathan Anand by asking him about this mini-series on Netflix called Queen's Gambit. Have you seen it? It is starring Anya Taylor-Joy and is about a fictitious chess prodigy called Beth Harmon. I was struck by two things about Vishwanathan Anand as he talked about the chess series. One was that he's able to take a look at the chess pieces in a scene which actually shows up for just a fraction of a second and he's able to reel off the match that would have inspired that particular scene. You know, the position of those chess pieces individually. You and I may have seen it as well, but wow, what an amazing memory that calls for. The second thing was his quiet confidence, where he talks about the chess players practicing their art almost in a cult-like fashion, spending an entire evening at the dinner table playing all the moves in their head. These two sides, the ability to recognize patterns and practicing actually explains Vishwanathan Anand's rapid playing speed even as a child. He was called the lightning kid. And sometimes an expert loves his or her craft so much that the line between work and play simply disappears. And when you, uh, you know, you talked about visualizing the game in your head, uh, is that a stage of transition that you first start by being able to see the board and you remember a bunch of games and moves uh, and then at some stage you are able to play it, uh, you know, a couple of moves forward. So is that how it happens in your head? What was your... Uh, Very much. It, you, it gets faster and faster. And you get slightly lazier. I mean, just players are lazy to... Uh, every time we want to discuss something, we are lazy to put up uh, the chess, uh, you know, the set on the table, set up the pieces, and then get to the position. Uh, the minimum we are willing to do is We'll set up the position we want to talk about straight away. We won't make the moves leading to it. But um, when I was young, I, I guess already by the age of eight or something, uh, I had gone from uh, taking a chess magazine, putting a chess set and playing through them to uh, just reading the magazine and following the thing in the, the board in my head. So you get there very fast and it, it doesn't even mark you out uh, particularly. It's uh, a fairly a common ability to be able to discuss a chess game in your head. And, and uh, when you 
become a grandmaster, what does it really mean? How do you know that you're a grandmaster? What is that sequence like? Uh, a grandmaster is basically a title, like a doctorate. And just like for a doctorate, you present your thesis and your thing. Okay, for, to become a grandmaster, you have to perform at the level of a grandmaster three to uh, two to three times. And these individual bits are called norms, grandmaster norms. And when you have completed uh, 24 games, then, uh, and there are one or two other criteria, you must uh, get your rating to a certain level. So you cannot just uh, make your norms and then let your rating collapse. You've got to hold that up. But uh, once you've done that, then you uh, give the application, the World Federation checks and approves. So essentially, that's what it is. It is, it is not an easy title to get. And so there is still a big sense of achievement in getting that. Once upon a time, when I was trying my for the GM title, I was the no Indian had become a GM. So then, in conversation, a grand, Grandmaster had the function that sometimes the Olympic gold medal has for us. How can a country like India not have any Grandmasters? Was the common way the question was phrased. So at that point, it had an extra prestige attached to it. Now it's. Still a great title, but you know, we have more than 65 grandmasters. India had to wait until you turned, what, 17 or 18 before you became a grandmaster? Well, I made my first norm the day of my birthday, uh, so I just turned 18. 11 December. Uh, 11th December, that's right. And my second norm was uh, two weeks later, three three weeks later. So I, and, and literally those two norms clinched it for me because they were 13 and 11, so I got to 24. And uh, then I, I became a grandmaster. And it was nice because I'd been trying to get these norms for about two years, but it just went like, when it happened, it finally was over in a month and uh, very nice feeling. Obviously, uh, it was very special. I remember for the first time, no, actually the second time because I had won the World Junior a few months before and that was when I first uh, I got my first exposure in the press and so on, you know, even made uh, covers of magazines and things like that. And uh, a Grandmaster was the second uh, time that happened. So became, let's say, comfortable with the idea of being slightly famous and that really came with a grandmaster type. At, at age 18, how does one learn to handle fame? Because yours was disproportionately high. I mean, you were the first grandmaster in India and it was, you know, a big deal. So what were those moments when you had to make those choices? You know, I can't remember the first time it happened, but uh, it's literally, it's, a, it's mostly just pleasant and fun. It's literally the sensation of uh, being at an airport and having a casual stranger struck up a conversation and then suddenly he realizes or people recognize you from the newspaper and they say, oh, you're thinking I'm this and I followed this and I followed that. It's not particularly a burden. It's, uh, you know, I got to deal with the fun side of fame. Clearly, my fame wasn't the gossip journalist, uh, you know, the gossip, the yellow <laughs> tabloid kind of fame. And... Yeah. Um, we should now consider this a blessing that was uh, well before social media. So I, I think fame has a different meaning now almost. But those were very innocent times, it seems to me. And uh, I, I wore it lightly. I, I enjoyed it. And, it. and every once in a while, it made your life easier. And I wouldn't say that I complained. And, you know, I've heard that uh, one time, you know, uh, your father and you were traveling in a train and somebody said, you can't make a living unless you are Vishwanathan Anand. Tell us about that. I mean, what, what, I have very sketchy information on that. What, what really happened? Well, actually, I was traveling alone. And, um, you know, it was back in the day when 
sat in the train and uh, people struck up conversations. So this man asked me, you know, young man, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to so what are you going for? Eventually he got around to asking, so what do you do? Do you study or something? And I said, no, I'm a chess player. And he said, yes, but what do you do? <laughs> so <laughs> I said, uh, I'm, a, I, I'm a chess player or whatever. I think it uh, there must have been something along the lines of, but your father has a company, you know, that kind of stuff. So uh, <laughs> you could see what was in his mind. And then at some point he said, well, young man, don't take this badly. And, uh, you know, sports is a very unpredictable career. And if you wanted to, uh, you should really think twice before you take the plunge. I mean, if you were Vishwanathan Anand, I, I remember the words fairly clearly. If you were Vishwanathan Anand, then you could make a living playing chess, but otherwise I would think twice about it. And, uh, uh, of course, uh, I did not tell him. Um, Why didn't you? You should have. Well, if someone else had been sitting next to me and had pointed it out, I would have enjoyed it. But I couldn't bring myself to say this. It was almost like uh, explaining it. So I decided to just leave it there. And uh, it's one of the nicest uh, stories I can imagine. How did your dreams about the game change in terms of, you know, how you visualized the pinnacle that you would achieve and how did that evolve and change? Because at some stage you would have gone past the role models. What was that like? Well, it, it happens gradually and you get used to everything, right? Um, when I was starting out at a very young age, many people told me that when I, when they would ask me what you hope to become in chess, I would always say world champion. And for me, it was not even an answer that I gave with some cockiness or arrogance. I, it was not like, you know, I have evaluated myself. It was, I answered the question, what do you want to become in the same way that what is your dream? And that is how I answer right. the question. In practice, every stage I got to was already more than I expected, per se. I, when I became a grandmaster, that felt very nice. And, you know, already I was an unknown territory. And uh, by this point, there was no real sense of failure uh, anyway. Everything you knew, you had almost been the first to do it in first Asian or first Indian. And, uh, and I didn't feel any pressure or uh, nothing like that. There, I don't even think I really knew what was involved in the journey. Mm. So uh, it allowed me to go in that journey just thinking, well, let's just see how far we get. And it's, it's this feeling when you finally climb the top of the mountain and you, you see that phenomenal view. Well, at least for the mountain, you know, you expect to see a phenomenal view. But for me, it was literally any point I would have gotten that far, it would have been great. I would have still been a chess player. I would have had a pretty glorious career for it by, by my um, expectations. My expectation, and uh, that's all it was. Um, I think the second or third time I tried for the world title. So my world title, the first time, first cycle I attempted was 91, 93. The second one was the one right after that, 93 to 95. And then I had a further attempt in 98. By 2000, I could feel the pressure of public expectations. You know, it was past this thing of, well, you've broken barriers and you're, um, you're a trailblazer. Fine. Yeah, we know all that. But when are you going to do it? And you could sense this even in people's attitudes to you. Like, uh, they no longer bothered with the disclaimer, oh, you know, it's amazing what you've done so far. but they would straight away get to the point. So when are you going to do it? Uh, and that feeling started to grow. 
when I finally became world champion, I, I think I, I felt the pressure and the relief of uh, expectation, but not, not much before that. The career path of Vishwanathan Anand brings up a very interesting dimension. When he was a kid, he would always say, I want to be a world champion. Now, this does not sound very different from the kid who says, I want to be an astronaut or I want to be a doctor. But then, very rarely do you come across children who have such a specific goal set so early in life. And more importantly, they stick to it. Then comes the unicorn phase where Vishy starts getting noticed. Strangers strike up conversations and some even advise him not to take up chess. Unless, of course, he is Vishwanathan and then, of course, it doesn't matter. There is the burden of expectations of a nation. When will you become a grandmaster? Remember, this is really like asking a 17-year-old, when will you get your doctorate? He actually delivers on that promise. In his case, Vishy became a grandmaster at age 18, and this is when he moved from being a unicorn to really becoming a market shaper. In 2007, he became the first sportsperson to get the Padma Vibhushan. Personality plays a major role in career success or failure. And Vishwanathan Anand talks about it in the next segment. So don't go away. You know, you've played um, in many, many formats. Uh, you kind of, you know, look at speed and intuition. Now, does that speed come from the fact that you have a certain number of games already worked out in your head? And if so, what's that number of games one needs to have to get the kind of speed you do? Lots of chess players who think quite fast. And then, <clears throat> I mean, there is no typical chess personality. You have every kind. You have the patient, worrying kind. You have the people who are impatient, uh, impulsive, they intuitive. Um, so the ones who uh, are impulsive to begin with continue being that way. And I was very much in that category. So as I got better, my moves would come faster. But it's true that I was one of the most extreme uh, in the sense, I know that uh, even historians would say, yes, there were there were fast people before, but you're insane no more. They, uh, when I was young, there were games I played very, very fast. And a lot of mistakes did creep in. Uh, so over time, I evolved to be slightly slower than what I used to be. But uh, in chess, mistakes are, uh, they're not mistakes unless somebody finds them. So, uh, and uh, there are other players who play quite fast. It's a pattern of, it's a thing of personality. And when you see the, the thing is, the more games you play, the more idea, the idea just pops in your head. You don't have to work it out. You don't have this logical way of thinking where I list what are my possibilities and then I work out the best one. The best one will pop into your head, you'll fall in love with it, you'll play it. That's kind of how it goes. And um, that's the kind of player I was. Like everything in sports, there is a, a point of time when you, win and then there is a point of time when you lose. Tell me about how do you handle both? I mean, how do you handle victory? How do you handle defeat? Um, well, I've had enough of both that uh, over time you get used to, uh, well, you tell yourself at least that this has happened before. But um, a blow is, uh, I mean, a defeat is a terrible blow. And there are so many times in a tournament where I feel gutted. And what I do is I realize it's more important to recover emotionally than uh, Technically, so this mm. means that uh, rather than uh, sitting and working on your thing, what you've got to do is maybe give yourself the evening off. I mean, if you tend to train in the evenings and then get ready, you have a routine. The day after the point, time after defeat is when you just uh, throw it to the four winds and you just uh, follow whatever routine you want. 
you might go for a long walk, you may skip work. You'll generally be annoyed at yourself and you know it's better to let go till you recover. Uh, at the other end, uh, winning, after winning, you sometimes you don't want to put the game behind you because you're so excited about it. And the problem is in both cases, after a defeat and after a defeat, there, there is probably another game to play the next morning, the next day. And your job is to get back to get back to earth before that game starts. Both euphoria and uh, depression are bad. So you need to find a way to put the previous day's events behind you. Typically, I say that uh, the best method is if you can get a good night's sleep. Uh, by this, I mean a night's sleep where my brain isn't thinking about all the things that happen over and over like a movie. You know. So you, if you can. Uh, Block those thoughts out. That's the best. Uh, and uh, you know, one of the uh, one of the things that I've uh, seen is that, uh, or at least I've read about on the internet, is that that spot in the movie, uh, the Queen's Gambit, where you know she doesn't have a clock, uh, that was actually taken from something that has happened to you. Is that correct? That yes, I've had I had that experience when I played in the US. And this is not common in other countries, but in the US they have this thing of there's an organizer and uh, he will simply announce a tournament, by which it, it means that he guarantees the prize fund and then he hopes he, it's a business proposition. He tries to uh, collect it from the entry fees and you know he tries to come out ahead. And quite often they will not have uh, all the chess sets and clocks. So participants are encouraged to bring their own to the tournament hall and use them. And so I, I had no clue. Because when we played in the Talchas Club, we were flooded with chess sets and clubs. So I just went to the game and then he said, well, you'll have to wait for someone to finish. And uh, then you can ask them if you can borrow their clock. And I could hardly believe it. And again, that's one of the things. I mean, clearly, they have the, I said they captured the US chess scene very well. And this is what I, one of the things I meant. So, um, you know, now sort of look at the way that um, you've become fairly synonymous with the game in India. Uh, and of course, internationally, you sort of make your mark like any market shaper. Um, in some sense, our career also follows uh, the three stages, dreamer, unicorn, and market shaper. Uh, you've been five-time world champion. You've retained the world championship thrice. What has changed inside you as you look at your journey? You know, you as a person as you started off and now. What is fundamentally the shift that is that the game has created in you? The biggest sense I feel is that when I uh, started out, I was entirely a pioneer and almost on a daily basis because after I became a grandmaster, I then after I became world junior champion, I became a grandmaster. After I became a grandmaster, I mean, I would literally do one small thing after the other and I would realize I was the first Asian to do it, <laughs> something mm. like that. And even in India, well, the enthusiasm for the sport had started to build. You know, people were still curious and they were inquisitive. They wanted to know more about what you did. You always had the feeling you were planning this, uh, you know, from scratch. And nowadays in India, the game has um, changed. I mean, we have so many grandmasters. We have a pretty vibrant chess community. Internationally, the the fact that the, this monster chess superpower that used to exist, the Soviet, exists, the Soviet Union, is now in different countries and uh, Russia is pretty good still. But, why? Uh, why? What is what is so special about? Um, everybody talks about the fact that you have to defeat the Russians. That is seems to be the ultimate port to conquer. Why is it like that? I think they were the first uh, professionals. 
the in the sense the communist state actually gave them the opportunity to make a living off chess you know not the capitalist living not the millions of dollars flooding into your bank account but nonetheless they were given a a flat a stipend and the opportunity to uh, play as much as they wanted because the state felt it should subsidize these kind of rich cultural activities and so when the rest of the world people had to often think uh, literally had that train on the wheels by if i should i now leave my university job and pursue chess but then i'll be dependent on winning these tournaments every month and i'll have to do this and do that can i find some other avenue which will support me can i have a part time job or maybe coach players and you always have to balance this in the rest of the world in uh, russia they didn't in the soviet union they didn't need to do that they guaranteed them a living and so they were able to concentrate all their energy on being chess um gradually that has uh, changed the biggest contributor to that change was probably bobby fischer in the sense that he started the revolution which uh, allowed chess players in the rest of the world to earn a living from chess that's uh, one more big change and uh, generally the game of chess has uh, been dramatically impacted by both computers and uh, communication the fact that now chess is available instantly everywhere you can uh, follow every tournament on your phone Sure. And, sure. and sometimes I have to uh, spring to remember stories like uh, you know I, I went to I went to the reception, asked the number of uh, asked the room number of some participant because somebody else had told me that that participant had a copy of the magazine where last month's tournaments were available, and then you went and you knocked on his door and said you know can I borrow that magazine? It's very hard to even remember these kinds of situations anymore because everything is available instantly to everyone. and uh, that's maybe the biggest difference in in chess has it uh, raised the overall standard of the game or uh, you know has it commoditized some stuff what has it done how has technology shaped the life of a sports person a chess player specifically probably both uh, what has happened is that uh, it's dramatically raised the level of uh, chess coaching ability to find opponent practice and inevitably uh, people get good at the game they get much better the problem is if enough of them do through word isn't it commoditized but on the other hand if enough of them get better then uh, you have to keep moving the signpost i think you can fairly confidently say that you can play in an open tournament today and uh, your opponents are, are more dangerous than they used to be 30 40 years ago the top gms were very good then how far you could uh, how far down you could go before you were totally safe from having to worry about being beat now it's more unpredictable once more a time almost say with certainty there's no way to lose when you think of a tournament uh, you know a really global tournament how long does that preparation work take i mean you know how do you prepare for it how many months or weeks or whatever does it take so for example if you are you know somebody says i i want to aim to be a grandmaster how long is that journey going to be like well chess knowledge is something you're constantly acquiring in fact uh, if you go a month or two then just like any muscle it atrophies a bit and uh, you're a bit slow when you come back so just now like you know once you start uh, competing you probably want to do it on a regular basis all the time and that kind of knowledge is also not uh, it's not targeted you're not saying i want to use this only against the opponent mm-hmm. it's like a huge bank that you can draw from uh, you're building up your bank account and then one day you'll need it and you remember oh i have that thing in the get it out and you use that and so on so you're constantly uh, increasing your knowledge then for a tournament you uh, will fine tune you need so you'll take your opponents 
you know, they'll make databases of each one of them. Say, okay, first, this one. If I play white against him, what is it I want to be doing? Uh, if I play black, what can I aim for? And so you have need a sense of uh, what they've been doing recently, what you can target, what you want to avoid, all that sort of thing. And here you're doing specific exploration for each one. But this work is useless unless you have built up that bank of general ideas from which you'll be able to draw the appropriate one. And so the more work you do in general terms, the easier it is to prepare for a specific Because chances are you'll have some little weapon somewhere that will work against that player. And that's really, so there are matches where I've spent um, three, four months with a team of four players working nine hour days, just, you know, uh, preparing uh, to be ready for the match. Because I know that he will, my opponent will be doing the same. That's overkill for a chess tournament. Actually, chess is a good example of the thing where you need to know uh, even what you don't need to know. You need to know something in order to know that you don't need it. So you'll have to keep on looking at uh, positions you don't play, uh, positions you don't aim for, structures that don't often occur in your game. It's helpful to keep an eye out, and see if something interesting is happening, test your level against it, if you're bad at something, try to improve on it. Because one day will come when that option will be valuable. And it'll be nice to have it handy. But if you have never studied it, you may not even know that option exists. So it's, uh, you've got to keep on working on all areas because you never know which one will turn out to be useful or necessary. You know, one of the things I've never heard anyone saying, and I'm going to make a note of this in my head, which is that you need to know even what you don't need to know. Isn't that an amazing way to look at how to build expertise? So even what he doesn't need to know, if even Vishwanathan Anand works so hard at constantly improving his chess moves, it really serves as an inspiration. In my book, Dreamers and Unicorns, I talk about market shapers and incumbents. If you look at any of the incumbents in any field, there are organizations or people who have stopped learning. And all their stories are all about their past days of glory. But staying relevant and staying innovative every single day is important, even when you are a grandmaster in chess, just like Vishwanathan Anand. So someone at your level, what do you, do you aspire to um, do something in the same game or do you now wish to take up something completely different in the sport or do you want to do something different going forward in sense of something that will give you a sense of achievement that I've now got? Or do you feel you've done it? Um, well, first of all, the, um, the landscape keeps changing very fast. I mean, uh, chess gets younger and younger, newer players are appearing all the time, they're doing interesting stuff. So even like a treadmill, staying in your position in chess requires a lot of work and a lot of things to involve. Um, in my case, it's true that most things I've done at least once, so it, it'll be hard to pretend that I can do something now. But you still feel I I did well in this tournament. I beat these young rivals. You know, I, I had a good performance. That still means a lot. You, you cannot get tired of chess uh, tournament simply because you won one or two. Uh, so you can always find new mini goals. Say, you know, all my life I never played this kind of structure. Let me try it and see if I can understand it and play it well. So you can learn new things and things like that. Besides that, I'm also trying to work with some of our youngsters and uh, passing on some of my experience and knowledge. 
and that's a nice new thing to do. I have uh, tried uh, doing commentary at Chestnut, and wow. that's been fun. Actually, I did it at the beginning in '91. I became in '88. My first breaks were as commentators, not as uh, a player. Mm. But uh, of course, subsequently, uh, I went to a tournament mostly to play in it. And so recently, it was nice to commentate online. Um, I'm sort of answering the question what I'm what I was doing in the pandemic as well, but uh, same same general principle. Um, you know, I I'm just curious when a planet gets named after you. What does it really mean? Because I know you also have a deep interest in astronomy. Where does that come from? Uh, I grew up with uh, Cosmos and Carl Sagan, and um, I always liked the book, and it's fascinating. And well, astronomy is one of these subjects. The hook is at the beginning, you know. As you get more interested in, uh, in astronomy and you read about uh, you know, the discoveries are being made, it's still nothing prepares you for that. Mind-altering impact that it has in the beginning. The first time you hear the, the distance from the Earth to the Sun, let's say, converted in some meaningful unit that you understand. If you were to walk from your house to your school, I don't know, 50 million times or something like that, and then uh, finding out that uh, other planets exist which can swallow the Earth a thousand times, and that other stars exist which swallow the Sun a thousand times, and the distances are mind-boggling, and I think astronomy gets its impact over at the beginning. The best bits, the really mind-blowing bits, it gets at the beginning. But anyway, and also my cousins and me used to do, sit and discuss uh, these things whether we could colonize other planets and a little bit of childish stuff there. But um, in 2015, it caught me off guard because it was announced on April the first, and my first reaction when a lot of people were Call me and tell me this is I would show them no no it's a practical joke you know I even know the mag chess magazine which does this it's a practical joke and so on and then it turned out that uh, in fact it wasn't a practical joke and then I had to read up about it so what happens is that uh, they're constantly discovering small asteroids and uh, minor planets these sort of things and eventually a lot of them build up so then the uh, IAU allows people to send in suggestions as to what you can call it after. Kind of getting public interest, and uh, there was a somebody who worked in the planetary center who center who um, was a chess fan, a man called Michael Rudenko, and he said, "Well, I know Anand's interest in chess. Let me put his name forward." And so he did that, and uh, in the next batch of approvals, I got approved, and uh, that was very nice. And for a while, I was sitting every more, every day and going to a web page where you could track where I am supposed to be right now. I found out that I'm at about minus 220 degrees. Wow. So I'm, pretty, I'm pretty cold out there. But, You're a pretty uh, cool guy. <laughs> yes, and so on. And it's, uh, I'm, I'm really flattered. I wrote a letter to him to thank him. And, uh, what, what is what the planet called? It's, just very, it's, uh, it's called Vishiyanam 4538. That's the number. Vish and then it's Vishiyanam 4538. Awesome. So, you know, um, I could, of course, go on talking to you about one last question. Uh, how, how come you got interested in learning German, Spanish, and French? Uh, you know, you, you have a penchant for learning languages. And when did you learn this? What age was that? And what drove you to it? Okay, French I simply learned in school. Uh, it was nice because we heard that French uh, 
they awarded marks more liberally. So I signed down for French. And that is probably the weakest of my languages because I studied French. But as is typical for something you learn in a school, if you don't use it much, it kind of just stays there. At some point, I traveled to Spain for the first time and I met a couple there. And they were incredibly good friends of mine, almost second parents. And uh, slowly the idea started to form that maybe I could uh, settle in Spain. You know, I needed a European base for my career. Maybe I could settle in Spain. Roughly the period for a few months before uh, buying a place and then afterwards, uh, I started to work on my Spanish. And that got better because I really did not uh, sit and learn it formally. I just learned it by speaking to people. Well, it's easily the best of my foreign languages. I learned it in the most natural way. And uh, about, what, seven, eight years later, I was, uh, I got an offer to play in a German chess club. And uh, I also had a very close friend of mine in uh, Frankfurt. And so, invariably, my plans would involve landing in Frankfurt, meeting up with his friend, and then going from there to the club there, or wherever the club was playing. And then I got the idea, well, why not just uh, pick up some German? I mean, I... German is similar enough to English that you recognize a lot of the words. And so it was just a small step from that. My German is a decent second to my Spanish, but uh, I think still my Spanish is the best of the two. Well, Brigitte, thank you ever so much for all the time that you've uh, you so generously spared for our listeners. And I'm sure that uh, they'll have plenty more questions. If they wanted to uh, connect you, where can they find you? Uh, I think by my email should work. Uh, uh, Vishy64 at Gmail. And uh, of course, on social media, do you want to give out your social media handles where they can follow you? Yes, uh, it's Vishy64, the king, modesty. Vishy64, the king is my Twitter handle. I think once you get to Twitter, you'll find my other accounts as well. I have a Facebook Perfect. page and an Instagram. Thank you so very much. And uh, you know, I wish that uh, you would forever, even though you are a market shaper, I would always wish that you would stay a dreamer at the core of yourself. Thank you very much for being with us. And that brings us to the last episode of season two of Dreamers and Unicorns. And if you've enjoyed the show, do rate us on the podcast platform where you've heard this episode. You can follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram at Abhijit Bhaduri. That's A-B-H-I-J-I-T-B-H-A-D-U-R-I or email me at abhijitbhaduri at live.com. That is A-V-H-I-J-I-T-B-H-A-D-U-R-I at L-I-V-E dot com. We will see you soon for yet another season of Dreamers and Unicorns. Until then, stay connected, stay curious. Goodbye. So don't forget to tune in. Dreamers and Unicorns 2.0 has been produced by HT Smartcast. To give it a listen, log on to htsmartcast.com or huh. अरे सुनिए जरा नए नजरिए से क्या फिर मिलते हैं जल्दी दिस वॉज एन एच टी स्मार्ट कास्ट ओरिजिनल एच टी स्मार्ट कास्ट